Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. The Law Enforcement Today Show is brought to you in part by Transformations Treatment Center. Many are using the term epidemic to describe the current problem of drug and or alcohol abuse in the United States. Virtually everyone we know has been negatively impacted by this problem. Yet for so many that are experiencing the devastating effects of drug and or alcohol abuse, they don't know who to turn to for help. Who can we trust to care for our loved ones? Transformations Treatment Center is one of the most respected, ethical, and professional drug and alcohol treatment centers in the world with a strong focus on individualized care, offering a wide range of holistic, specialized, and medically supervised treatment programs. We know that many of you have questions. Take the time to call Transformations Treatment Center for the answers. 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Or go online to transformationstreatment.center. Calling us from Tennessee, we have Detective Pat Postiglione on the phone. Pat, did I get your last name right? Yeah, Postiglione. Yeah, they, yeah I've been called all kinds of things, but that's very close. Uh, Pat is a retired Nashville Police Department homicide detective. I believe Sergeant retired at th- that rank, correct? Yes. And he's also a star of the television show on Investigation Discovery Channel called Deadly Recall. I always get a kick out of interviewing cops who turn out to be television stars because it's just good to see one of my brothers and sisters make big <laughs> yeah I, I yeah i don't know about big but but i, I it, it is i kind of reluctantly got dragged into it to be honest with you um i'm geared towards the victims and the victims families and that's the driving force for me and that's why they agreed to talk about the families and the victims and the victims agreed to talk about you know kind of paint a picture of the victim being more than just the victim of a homicide, uh, you know, their hopes, their dreams, and that kind of thing, and, and kind of humanize the victims, and that's and that's what I was all about, and they agreed to do that, so here I am. That's one of the great things about Investigation Discovery Channel is they, the news media and cops, we don't typically get along, and part of the problem is, and part of the reason why we had the Law Enforcement Today show, is the news media doesn't tell complete story. They will... I'll use the example all the time. A cop gets shot. They'll say, the good news is the injuries aren't life-threatening. Uh, they'll survive. But they don't talk about what they have to go through afterwards, what the family has to go through. And when they have a victim of a homicide, unfortunately, what winds up happening is it's all about the suspect and almost nothing about this individual and the loss of the family and the loss of community. And I'll be honest with you, Pat, it, it drives me nuts. Oh, yeah. No, it, it drives me nuts as well. Um, you, you, when, when you're dealing with the victims, you know, normally, like, like you say, you get the sanitized version of what happens to the victim. You know, unless you're a homicide detective and you're right there, um, you know, in the trenches with the victim, you, you don't really understand the the horrific nature of what happened to that particular victim, whether it's a stabbing, whether it's a shooting, whether it's beat to death, whether it's a child or an elderly person. You know, they, they don't realize not only what the victim's families uh, have to go through and endure, you know, not through the search for the bad guy 
and then the trial process, the, you know, the never-ending uh, trials that, that go on and the appeal process and all that stuff. You know, the, the detectives, too. You know, the crime scene investigators, they're, they're right in the middle of it. The, the detectives are in the middle of it. You know, and I've, I've been inside crime scenes, and maybe you have as well, where you're in there for hours and hours with the victims. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's something that you don't easily forget. No, you don't. And speaking of forget, the name of the show is called Deadly Recall. I believe you're on Wednesday nights. Is that correct? That's correct, right. And the reason it's called Deadly Recall is you have photographic memory. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they call it a photographic memory, but it, it's really geared more towards, um, I was I learned over the years when I first went to homicide, I didn't, I didn't realize it existed, to be honest with you. But when I was inside of crime scenes, um, other detectives would feverishly write notes down about everything they were saying and everything they were documenting, everything. I was able, uh, as time went on, I was able to remember everything inside the crime scene, um, you know, whether it's, you know, potential evidence or the victim, the uh, layout of the rooms, uh, all, all that, you know, uh, air conditioning on, television on, channels and all that stuff. I was able to recall that. Then I was able to reduce it to writing after I left the crime scene, and I was able to recall details of the crime scene, you know, six, eight, ten months later. Um, if I was interviewing somebody and they were telling me something about the crime scene, I would know whether that was true or not true. And and the same applied, actually, when I began to interview uh, suspects and witnesses, mainly suspects. I didn't take any notes. Um, I, I felt it incredibly distracting to take notes while you're interviewing a, a murder suspect. So I, I, I relied on my memory as to what this person was telling me. And I was able, uh, for some reason, to recall everything he he told me. And then I would go back and I would ask him about something he said 40 minutes ago that he now changed. And so I was able to, you know, and I don't know if it's a gift or a curse, to be honest with you, but I was able to remember everything he tells me. And the same applies for these crime scenes. Um, and that's, you know, they call it a photographic memory. Uh, I'm not sure that's what it is, but, but I do recall the details of crime scenes and I do recall the details of everything a suspect tells me. So it doesn't really matter, I guess, whether it's an acquired skill set or you were born with it, or a combination of the two, it's something I can see that winds up being very beneficial in, in police investigation, right. especially homicides. But like right. you said, I don't know there'd be a blessing all the time, because I'll be honest with you, Pat, there's things that I would love to forget, and I've been able to forget a lot of things, and, and I guess crowd my limited brain with other new experiences, but every now and then they pop up. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It, it, you know, the, the old thing is, once you see it, you can't unsee it, whether it's a horrific uh, homicide crime scene and you're inside the crime scene and, you know, it's a, a child or, or some other innocent victim. You don't unsee that stuff. You push it to the back, like you say, you know, you, you, you do kind of forget it, but it, it, it's always there. It's always in that hard drive and it always bubbles up from time to time. So, what you know, I'm, I mean, I've had other detectives call me about a homicide back in 1992 and, and they would ask me details about that homicide um, and I would for whatever reason i'd be able to recall the typically the victim's name the nature of the homicide the weapon that was used so i don't know i, I mean it it's probably uh, i i look at it as more of a blessing than a curse because i think over the years my years in homicide i think it was beneficial to me working these cases and and, and my memory and my recall of these crimes i i do think helped me out over the years I was able, due to my connections at Investigate Discovery Channel, Justine, she sent me the, the, the whole episode for the Truck Stop Killer. I watched that the other day. Right. And there was a line you said in there. I, I'm not, I don't want to give away a lot of the story. People need to watch this. 
Right. And two reasons. I'll explain why. But you, there's a line in the story. He said the way she was positioned is as if she was thrown out like garbage, and it immediately brought me back to murder scene in Baltimore, a prostitute uh, thrown down the stairs, and I was able to right. arrest the guy who did it within 20, 30 minutes because he was the next floor up. But right. it's amazing how years was in Nashville. Years is a totally different crime, right. different crime scene, different suspect, different victim, and it was so eerily similar. Yeah, it, you know, I'm, I mean, when you're dealing with these types of killers, you know, you're dealing just like in your case, you're dealing with people who don't have a conscience, and they could kill somebody, throw them down the stairs, or leave them out in the middle of a parking lot and go eat dinner, and and, and never lose a minute's sleep. I, I can't explain it. I just know that it exists, so I don't know if they're psychopaths, sociopaths, combination of the two, but but just like you, yeah, I, I, you see it, and they're thrown out like trash. I mean, I, I've seen it so many times where the victims are just thrown out, and I never did. It's always intrigued me to try to understand how one human being can, can do that to another human being and, and go on with their life as if nothing has happened. That's something that's always intrigued me, and nobody really can, can answer that other than to say, well, that person doesn't possess a conscience. Uh, obviously, if they did, they wouldn't be doing these things, and, and maybe that's true. You know, um, a lot of the ones I've arrested over the years and interviewed, I, I can think of one or two that were legitimately remorseful about what they did. Not, not remorseful about getting caught, but were actually remorseful about what they did. But 99% of the ones that confessed had no remorse whatsoever, no, no guilt no regrets. You know, they were just upset about uh, having to go to prison kind of deal. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with retired detective Pat Pastiglione, uh, yeah. star of the television show, Deadly Recall, Investigation Discovery Channel. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Finally, our heroes have access to a world-class program for PTSD, anxiety, depression, and more. The Help for Our Heroes program at Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for substance abuse, addiction, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Plus, they offer complete treatment for mental health issues for those without substance abuse problems. In addition to multiple rehabilitation and holistic treatments for all those suffering from substance abuse problems, the Help for Our Heroes program at Transformation Treatment Center is a nationally acclaimed veterans and first responders treatment program where law enforcement, firefighters, veterans, and all first responders receive the separate and highly specialized treatment they need. Got questions? They have the answers at the Help for Our Heroes program at Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Online at helpforourheroes.com. There's only one show like ours, the Law Enforcement Today radio show. And on Facebook, there's only one official page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. That's Law Enforcement Today radio show on Facebook. When you get there, click like and follow. Back to our conversation with Detective Pat Pastiglione. He is retired from Nashville, Tennessee Police Department. He's also star of the television show on Investigation Discovery Channel, Deadly Recall. Before we end the break, we're talking about these killers, and so many of them don't have remorse for what they do. I want to get back to that in just a moment, but one of the things that, that popped vividly in my mind watching the show with you was 
quite often, uh, you have a job to do. I was always in patrol. Uh, at homicide scenes. We still had a job to do. And one of the things that I could not get out of my mind is what was going through the victim's mind as they were being killed. And that has always bothered me. And when I watched the episode with the truck stop killer, I thought the same thing about her, except maybe that the injury was so severe and so sudden that she didn't feel anything. But the fear... Everything else that comes along with it, what do they experience? Are you troubled by that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, any of these victims, um, you know, regardless of their personal circumstances or what led them to being uh, into the position that that got them killed, uh, yeah, the fear factor must have been just overwhelming. They were just, many cases, just frozen in fear. And and I do wonder, like, you know, did they suffer kind of deal? And a lot of them apparently did suffer, um, you know, because they didn't necessarily die right away. Um, In in the case you're speaking about, she probably did die rather quickly. But at the same time, we don't know if there was 15 or 20 minutes leading up to that happening to her. So she she must have been completely frozen in fear, knowing what was about to happen. Didn't know when it was going to happen, but knew it was going to happen. So you can imagine the kind of fear that they go through. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something just like like, like you said. I, I do think about that. Um, on all the crime scenes I was on, you, you wonder what the victim's last thought was and, you know, how the victim probably wondered, this is the end, and, you know, how did I get myself into this predicament? And, right. yeah, it's, it's a terrible thing. But, yeah, I do think about it, absolutely. And the same token, the flip side of that is when you get the killer and you're talking to the killer, how many of them, for example, when you do the interview and, hey, do you want something to drink? Do you want something to eat? And we give it to them, and they'd be right away. Maybe drinking soda and eating a bag of chips, and they just got done killing somebody. It's as if, hey, I took the garbage out and threw it out, and uh, why are you bothering me? Well, I, you know that's exactly right. You know, in one case, uh, you know, I mean, I recall the guy eating a uh, sausage and biscuit sandwich, and he had blood on his hand. So, yeah, I mean, when you're dealing with people, I, I and I guess it, it goes back to being a psychopath or sociopath, and, and not not having a conscience, not caring about another human being. Being able to kill them and go eat breakfast or, you know, and then when you interview them, they, they, they pretty much have a lackadaisical attitude about it. It's, you know, they, they, they give it up. They, they give a statement. They, they, they kind of give a statement that's beneficial to them down the road. Uh, no remorse. Like, like I said earlier, they express absolutely no remorse. And, yeah, they could drink a Coke. They could, you know, they, they, they're polite to you. Yes, sir. No, sir. That kind of thing. And it just boggles my mind that they still got blood on their hands. In some cases, they had just killed another human being, and they seem absolutely unfazed by it. It's so amazing. And I, I've tried, I've actually given up trying to explain that to people, that it's not like Hollywood. It's not what we see where there's adversarial, there's people yelling and throwing phone books around and stuff like that, and they're yelling back at you. Most of them, very respectful, very nice, yes, sir, no, sir. And it's all about trying to, it's like a chess game, trying to figure out what you know and you're trying to get that one bit of information that's going to make the whole house of cards collapse. Oh, that, yeah, exactly. You, you, you're trying to you're trying to convince them, and and it's really a, it, it's a difficult task for the homicide detective because the homicide detective is trying to convince this person to confess and tell me that you did this, committed this homicide, and in so doing, you're going to go to prison for the rest of your life. So you have to have that persuasive ability to convince them to do that, which is not always easy. Sometimes they confess. Uh, some serial killers that I've encountered, they they don't confess as easily as an, another type of a, a killer. But the serial killers uh, will sometimes, you know, offset it, blame other people and that kind of thing. But but you have to convince them to, to give you something about the crime scene, 
something, some detail that you know only the killer or someone with the killer might know. And we were able to do that with the with the uh, case that you had mentioned. Now, the case that we're talking about, the truck stop killer, which you can see on Investigation Discovery Channel and Deadly Recall. Uh, and I'm by no means an expert in homicide investigation. Like I said, I did narcotics, uh, violent crime, auto theft, and patrol was my specialty. But right. one of the things I do know it's much easier to solve a homicide when it is a family member or friend. It's usually someone close to the victim. In this case, the killer was someone unknown to the victim, and it's got to make it much harder for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, when when you have a homicide, you know, typically, you know, homicide 101, you look at the people closest to the victim, be it a husband, be it a wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever the case may be, you always look at them first. And, and, we, and we did that in this case. But when you have a stranger killing... Uh, stranger on stranger type homicide it's it's very difficult because you have no way of linking the two together unless someone could say well i saw so-and-so with the victim most of the time when you have stranger homicides you have no idea who was with the victim and you have no clue at all who killed the victim that's where forensics comes in and hopefully you can get some dna or some sort of identifier then you can either link that guy uh, to other crimes possibly and then then get an identification whether it's to uh uh, DNA CODIS type uh, identification hit maybe, but but yeah, you're right. Stranger uh, on stranger homicides are very difficult to solve. And they often become what we call in Baltimore red balls, where and people love to comment. They'll say, "Well, the victim was a prostitute, or the victim was a drug addict, and the police don't care." Right. Well, quite often with a stranger on stranger homicides, it's people who are at risk lifestyles, and it's because of lack of evidence and a lack of clues to follow that it's hard to solve it's not because of the victim's lifestyle oh yeah i mean i, I work just as hard on a, a prostitute homicide than i would on any other homicide so yeah if, if they, that's absolutely incorrect but I, you're right a lot of times it has to do with uh, lack of evidence um and a lot of times you know the, the the victim if the victim is a drug addict you know the, the pull for the drugs and, and, and you work in narcotics would know this the, the pull for the drug is stronger than the fear of getting into the truck with a potential serial yeah. killer. They, they would take that risk and get into the truck with a person who may in fact be a serial killer in order to make money, in order to buy their drugs. And, you know, and, and, and that's what happens in some cases. It is, and I, I do know, and I don't remember what the code is, but there was something that our Baltimore homicide guys and gals would say all the time is, they speak for the, the victim, and they're the voice of the victim, and they work just as hard on every case. It didn't matter if they were a politically connected victim or if it was a streetwalker. They worked their tails off and they worked till they couldn't work on it anymore. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, a, a lot of times, a lot of times it looks different and the reason why it looks different is because the media, if there's a high profile homicide, for example, the media will play that high profile homicide and they'll, they'll beat the police department every single day, they'll beat the door down trying to get information on the investigation. Where if a prostitute, for example, gets killed, that detective is working just as hard on that prostitute homicide, which gets no media attention or very little media attention. And I think that's where the difference comes in. I, I, I think it's just a perception because this one got so much media coverage, they must be working much harder on that one. And that's really not the case. Absolutely. It's a great way of explaining it. We are talking with retired detective Pat Pastiglione from the Nashville Police Department, star of the television show on Investigation Discovery Channel, Deadly Recall, on Wednesday nights. Well, we're going to take a short break. We return. We're going to talk more about his experience investigating homicides and how he got from New York to Nashville. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If you've missed past episodes of the Law Enforcement Today radio show, 
Never fear. You can listen to them online as a podcast. Just go to our website, letradioshow.com, where you'll find all the podcast episodes and much more. That's letradioshow.com. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Be sure to click like and follow. We'll see you there. Back to our conversation with retired Nashville homicide detective sergeant Pat Basiglione, star of the television show, Deadly Recall on a Investigation Discovery Channel. Pat, before I forget, thank you for your service. It's very much appreciated. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, one of the things that intrigued me when I first heard your voice on the television show, I was like, this is Nashville, Tennessee, and this guy's got a, a New York City-type accent, and it's obvious you're from the Queens, Brooklyn area, correct? Yeah, Queens. I'm born in Queens. So, and you migrated to Nashville to become a cop. Is that how it happened? Yeah, I, yeah. I was um, I was in the military. I got out of the military, and I would befriended a lot of guys who lived down south. And I was a New York guy, so I came down to Nashville, and I applied for the Nashville Police Department. And lo and behold, they hired me. Um, and I and I got on the department in 1980, way back in 1980, and I worked uh, in the patrol division for uh, seven years. And after the seventh year, they transferred me to the homicide unit, and I stayed in the homicide unit, um, believe it or not, from 1987 until 2013. So I, w- I was in a homicide unit for a long time. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm in <laughs> there, there's several New York guys here, but when I first moved to, to Nashville, there was only a couple of uh, New York uh, police officers. Um, now I think there's probably a handful um but when I first came on, it was a whole different deal for me. It was a big culture shock. But but I have to say, Nashville has been absolutely great. My, my kids were all born here. They grew up here. They went to school here and went to college here. So Nashville has been outstanding. And, you know, and, and I'm so happy to have been able to move here. And hopefully I did some good along the way for the, for the citizens in Nashville. I'm sure you did. It, you were not an oddity. In Baltimore, we had a lot of guys came from... Uh, New York, New Jersey area, especially 1980, early 80s. I came on in 1980 as well. And the reason being right. is they wanted to be police, but New York wasn't hiring. And, and their their towns right. in Jersey weren't hiring. And we, we were recruiting everywhere because we were so short. We had a lot of guys from Ohio, Michigan, New York, Pennsylvania, uh, New Jersey as well. And quite a few of them stayed and finished their career there. A few waited till they had an opening back home and went there. But they were great police. And there's something about, I mean, I love Nashville. I love Tennessee. Uh, I love the, the, the South. But there's something about the ethnic neighborhoods of up north that I miss, uh, that I don't seem to come or see that often down here. Is that a situation in Nashville? They have a lot, a lot of ethnic neighborhoods or is everything pretty much just mixed? Yeah, it, it's, uh, yeah. I, when I first moved here, it was nowhere near as diverse as it is today uh but yeah i i mean it's it's not the type of neighborhood that you recall from new york or queens or long island or anything like that it's it's um it's different here it's um 
you know, you don't have uh, groups of people necessarily living in particular neighborhoods. And in New York, they, they, they had different groups of people living, living in neighborhoods, and it was just the way it was. It, yeah. it just, you grew up with that. You know, they had the, the pizza place, they had the delicatessen, they, they had uh, every every corner had a pizza place. It's it's not like that in Tennessee. But, you know, in the beginning, in the beginning, it was a little difficult for me to, uh, to, to kind of get my hands around that. But as time went on, now that's the norm for me. It's a, it's the normal for me. I, I don't know any other way. When I go back to New York and visit friends or family, you know, I, 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 I kind of slide back into the old ways. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, like I say, I mean, I, I love New York. You know, I miss New York, but at the same time, uh, Nashville is my home, and uh, you know, Nashville's been great to me, and and I have absolutely no regrets. Now, before we get back to the conversations about policing, have you developed a taste for biscuits and gravy yet? Well, you know the biscuits. Yeah, I, I, I can't. I can't get past the gravy. Now, now my my kids love the gra- biscuits and gravy. I, I just can't. I can't do that gravy. I don't know what it is. Oh my! That white gravy. We gotta work on you. We gotta get you down here and uh, get you introduces more foods. But policing <laughs> is policing. And here's the funny right. thing: we get so used to in America. We get so used to the portrayals of policing in New York City and Los Angeles and Chicago, uh, and right. places like Nashville and Knoxville and Memphis, right. they get treated like they're the redheaded stepchildren of policing, as, a, as if they don't do the same job, experience the same loss, the same injuries, uh, whether it be mental or physical. You guys had it rough. Uh, it, Nashville is by no means, I know it's a music city, it's a great city with a great history, right. uh, but right. it's not immune to violence and violent crime. Oh, no, no. We, yeah, I mean, Nashville has, you know, uh, in the, I think the heyday would have been in the 90s. We were having a lot of gang-related homicides, and a lot of people would never connect Nashville with gang-related homicides. Well, we actually had gangs from L.A., from Los Angeles, coming to Nashville, trying to set up shop here, trying to set up their drug trade in Nashville. And I myself worked several homicides with people connected to L.A., people from L.A. who came to Nashville, got killed in Nashville, or came to Nashville and killed other people in Nashville. So, yeah, we, I mean, back in the 90s in particular, there was a big influx of gang-related activity, gang-related killings, the Bloods and the Crips came into Nashville. And, you know, when you think of Nashville, you don't think of that. You don't think of, well, gang-related killings. Well, there was a lot of gang-related killings um, in Nashville. And, yeah, you know, I mean, I would say Nashville's no more violent than maybe other cities the the same size as Nashville. Um, But it has its share of violence. You know, every city, I guess, has an underbelly. And, and Nashville's no exception. Has a lot of the crime in Nashville back then due to uh, the interstate geographics? Yeah, yeah. I mean, interstate played a big role. You got interstates coming in, three different interstates coming in right through the heart of Nashville. So, yeah, I, I would say that's uh, with the drug traffic going back from Memphis to Nashville and, and going to Texas in some cases. Yeah, they were running drugs uh, big time, and they have drug interdiction units all up and down the interstates here today. So, yeah, uh, interstates played a big part. I agree. And about how many homicides a year would you average in, in Nashville? Uh, I would say anywhere from 75 to 120, Some, you know, and it kind of fluctuates. So, some years they have less, some years they have a little bit more. But in the, in the 90s, they were doing somewhere in the na- neighborhood of 103, 105, uh, 110. Um, and then we had one year where it actually dropped way down just a, several years ago, and it dropped way down. Uh, to like the 50s and 60s, kind of like New York City deal where the, the homicides drop down and they say, well, maybe crime, maybe the people have stopped killing each other. Well, I, I, I think the explanation for that is over my years in homicide, I've seen ebb and flow. I've seen the homicides spike 
and then I've seen the homicides go down, and you wonder, well, what's the reason for that? A lot of times I've noticed is you arrest some of these people, you put them in prison for homicides or, or violent crime, and they're in, and they're in prison, so they're not going to commit any, any crimes on the street. And the younger kids, they're a little bit too young to get involved with guns and crime until they get to become 14 or 15 years old, so you have a little bit of a gap. You have a little bit of a space there where you're going to have a, um, a reduction in homicides. And then when those kids get a little bit older, they pick up right where their older brother left off or their, or their father or whatever the case may be, and they continue with the violence, and then the violence will spike again. So it ebb, ebb and flow, you know, different reasons for it, but, but that definitely is one of the reasons. Reminds me of the old country song. We used to say this all the time. A lot of these killers, it was a family tradition, and it was the, exactly. the family occupation, yeah. and particularly with drugs and drug gangs i'm not saying when i say gangs people think of mafia they think of hell's angels they think of all these other things i'm just talking about street crews and we could have several generations of one family and extended family members in one street crew and one goes to jail one gets killed and another one pops up magically right behind them oh yeah yeah i mean i've, I've interviewed a uh, father and son um uh, who, who uh, one was killed one was a suspect in another homicide so yeah, it's it for whatever reason. It's in the DNA. I'm not really sure how to explain it, but yeah, we've definitely seen the connection between families and and the gangs too. The the gangs uh, that we have in Nashville, and I'm sure it's the same up in Baltimore. These gangs are committed gang members. Where if there's somebody in another gang that said something derogatory about one of their um, one of their uh, gang members, I mean that person really risks their life. They really risk being killed if they come into that neighborhood, and they and the other guys know that that guy is in that neighborhood. They will do their level best to try to kill that guy. And as crazy as that sounds, they will kill you for saying something that they didn't appreciate. Uh, they will literally kill you for that. And, and just, that's always, blew, you know, blew my mind uh, how that happens. But that definitely happens, and I'm sure you've seen the same thing. We have, and uh, the lack of respect, or he disrespected me, was the reason why I killed him, we heard quite often. Yeah. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We're going to take a short break. We'll return to our conversation. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Epidemic, America's public health crisis. These are all terms that describe the current problem of drug and alcohol abuse in the United States. Countless lives are lost, and heartbroken families are too many to count. Transformations Treatment Center is dedicated to saving lives. Call 888 991 9725 and online at transformationstreatment.center. Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for addiction, substance abuse, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Transformations Treatment Center has many acclaimed treatment programs offering rehabilitation and holistic treatment for all those suffering from substance abuse problems. Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. And online at transformationstreatment.center. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. I'm John J. Wiley, retired Baltimore Police Sergeant. I am joined by... Retired Nashville Police Department Detective Sergeant Pat Pasiglione, star of the 
Investigation Discovery Channel television show, Deadly Recall. I want to thank you so much, Pat, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. Before we talk more about your show, you did how many years total in the National Police Department? Uh, National Police Department, 32 and a half years. Uh, 25 and a half of those years are in homicide. That's a long, long time. And and before we got in the interview, I asked if you were tired. He said, yeah, well, I work kind of part-time with investigators. <laughs> so I'm like, can you give this up? Or it, It's awful hard to get out of your blood, isn't it? Well, it really is, you know. Uh, you know, because I was I was in homicide for so long. I, I to this to this minute, I, I get contacted by different people asking for help. A case may not even be in this jurisdiction. They they may just ask me for help or some suggestions, and and I have no problem helping them. If if, if that's something I can do, if I can connect them to somebody who can help them with a particular case, I, I mean, I love to do that. I have no problem doing that. But you're right. It, it's difficult to to work homicides on a daily basis for over 25 years and then just set it down and walk away. I mean, it's it's easier said than done. I'm definitely uh, doing less now than I did when I when I was working full time as a homicide detective and then sergeant over the unit. I was sprinting, literally sprinting every single day. I, I mean, I would hit the ground running and wouldn't stop until later that night. Uh, you know, always thinking about this case or thinking about that case or, or what this witness said or what that other witness didn't say. You know, it never leaves you. <laughs> There's always another door to knock on. There's always another witness to find, whether you retire today or 10 years from now. I, I've learned that these cases will never stop. They'll never go away. So there's never a good time to leave homicide as a detective or as a sergeant over the unit. There's never a good time to leave. And, and the reason is because it never ends. And there's no end to it. Part of what I hear from many guests who worked homicide for a long period of time is it's not the cases they solved it's the ones they couldn't solve that they want to keep on pushing at and then they they want to kind of retire and they still think man i wish i could do this i wish i got to find that one piece of info especially if they know who did it but they can't prove it oh yeah and you know um when i was in homicide i i worked active cases i was called out on um, current homicides for years and years and then i became a super, uh, sergeant over the unit and we did the same thing, and then we began working cold cases, and that's exactly right. A lot of those cold cases that we began we began to make when we first created the unit, we were able to solve a lot of the cases because, like you say, there was a suspect. We had almost enough evidence, but not quite enough evidence to charge him, so the focus was on, let's get that little bit of evidence, let's get that little piece of evidence, let's go interview that witness who 20 years ago wouldn't give up any information, but maybe the relationship has now changed, so we go back to that person, we interview them, and maybe they're going to say something today that they um, wouldn't have said 20 years ago, and of course, the the, the emergence of DNA, we made many uh, cold cases by using DNA, um, you know, DNA that was, wasn't even thought about when the evidence was collected many years ago, DNA wasn't even on their mind. It was collected simply because it belonged to the victim. So we would take those so, same items and submit them for DNA. And lo and behold, many times, not every time, but many times we got DNA off of those items and were able to subsequently identify someone who had no idea was even connected to the victim. Like you say, a stranger on stranger type situation. So yeah, it's, it's the unsolved cases that stick with you. No question about it. Um, yeah, there's several cases in my mind that, that I've worked on that, uh, unfortunately, I was not able to solve, but I never forget them. I mean, if somebody calls me today with information, I'm on it. So so that's that's just the way it is. I, that's It's in my DNA, to be honest with you. I, I can't do anything other. I can't just set something down and walk away and just say, oh, well, you know, leave it for the next guy. 
I mean, hopefully the next guy can handle it, but at the same time, if I get information that's useful, I'm certainly going to do something with that information. And it's not that the other guys are bad cops. It's not that at all. But I, I have a thing, and my wife, she's not in police work. She's, if I want it done a certain way, I do it myself. Because part of right. me, deep down inside, part of me thinks that no one else can do it as well as I can. And that included policing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah, and, and another thing is, if, if you worked on a case and you dedicated a big chunk of your life on a particular case, and the case is unsolved, and you know how many hours and, and how many how much lost family time you had because of that particular case, you want to you wanna hopefully solve that case. Um, you know, I mean, if someone else solves it, that great, that's great. But at the same time, it would be great if you could somehow get some information that, that would put the pieces together to solve that case, because you know how much time went into that case and how much work you put into it. And also how much time your family didn't get with you. One of the things that people don't tend to believe, and different departments are different ways, but like our department, they had a homicide crew on 24-7, and they rotated. And a, a detective would get the call, and they'd stay on it until they couldn't work it anymore. Then they'd go home, then they'd come back and work on some more until they got another call. Many departments, the, de- the detectives go home, and they have a page or a phone, and they get called in the middle of the night. So in this episode, you were called in the middle of the night, to go out to this homicide scene. When you work these scenes, how many hours typically would you, would your family sacrifice for you not being around? Well, I mean, an example would be if I got called out, uh, say, 9 o'clock at night, um, and it's a mystery homicide, meaning there's no known suspects, typically I would be out the entire night. Uh, the morning would come, the shift would start, um, and I would work through the entire shift. So I'd be, I'd be gone from 9 o'clock, Last night, I'd be gone until, you know, 5, 6, 7 o'clock the following day. So a lot of times it's 24 hours, and sometimes it's as long as 30 hours. But you, know, you don't want to push the guys until they become thoroughly exhausted. But at the same time, if you've got really hot leads you're following, you have no choice but, but to do that. So, I mean, I, you know, I've missed um, graduations. I've missed, uh, you know, vacations with family because either had a trial coming up or I was in the middle of a homicide investigation. And you just, it's not something you can just sit down and say, okay, I'll pick it back up next week when I come back into town. It doesn't work that way. Um, so I would, ha- I would have to miss the family time. And, and, and my family was very understanding. They um, didn't necessarily like it, but at the same time, they understood it. I get that. And please tell them I said thank you for that as well. Uh, going back to the episode, we're talking about the truck stop killer. I don't want, I'm not going to give away the details. People need to watch this because one of the things that happens in the scene, and this takes me back to the homicide I told you about with mine, where it was, the woman was a prostitute. It was a garden style terrace apartment and her body was in between floors and the stairs. And we had a, a criminal summons for a guy in one of the apartments and he wouldn't open the door and the patrolman said, hey, Sarge, this guy, blah, blah, blah. I knocked on the door. He opened it and I saw quickly a speck of blood on his cheek. And then I saw spots of blood on his shoe, and I knew immediately that this had to be the guy. And it reminded me of how you got turned on to your truck stop killer. And without giving away details, it's pretty amazing. But what they always say, luck goes to those who are prepared and do the work. You were working this this case. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no question about it. um I had a detective assigned to the case. I was working along with one of my detectives, and we were on it. I mean, we were on this case, and it appeared to me early on, uh, to be honest, that it appeared to be a serial-type uh, killer that we were dealing with. And, and, and as you know, the, the problem when you're dealing with a serial killer 
is that it's not like a regular homicide where you have a victim and, and you're working that particular case. When you're dealing with a potential serial killer, you have to remember that the serial killer just killed your victim and is now looking, actively looking for another victim. So, you know, the clock is running for you in terms of trying to get identify the suspect before he's able to kill someone else. And when you're dealing with a serial killer, you know, um, my experience has been there's only two ways to stop a serial killer. And one is the serial killer dies or you arrest him and send him to prison. And, and that's it. There's no other options. The name of your show is Deadly Recall on Investigation Discovery Channel. Tell us what nights it's on and what time. It, it's on Wednesday nights, uh, 10 o'clock Eastern, 9 o'clock Central Time. And I believe this is your second season, correct? Yes, season number two. Yes, sir. One of the things that I had a hard time dealing with, Pat, was when I retired from police work and eventually got into radio, the first time I started hearing myself on radio or hearing commercials that I recorded, it kind of blew my mind because I just, I figure myself as being a street cop and you know, just one of those kind of guys. Do you see yourself on television and go, nah, that's not me? No, I, I really don't. Uh, I, you know, it, I, I mean, I really don't. I, I, I know other people say, well, you know, he's doing his show and all that, but... Uh, my focus, like I said earlier, my focus is with the victim. So I kind of take me out of the mix. I really do. I, I pull myself out of the mix. I don't look at myself. You know, I try to be the spokesperson for the victim. That, that's that's really what it amounts to. And, and, and I've connected with the families over the years. I, I really had a special bond with the victim's families. And, you know, you be, you kind of become their lifeline, to be honest with you. And, and that's what I try to do with this show. I, I, I try to talk to the viewer through through what the case is about and you give them bits and pieces you're not able to go through the entire investigation because it would have to be a six-hour show so you 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 give them whatever you can you show them how the case was finally resolved but the most important thing is the victim's families get an opportunity to talk about the victim what they aspired to be the kind of people they were you know and they 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 put a they humanize the victim versus just being a homicide victim lying in the middle of a field somewhere and that's what investigation discovery channel does so well television show is called deadly recall pat thanks so much for your service and thanks so much for being guest on the show very much appreciated all right thank you very much john take care we're all over social media be sure to like and follow our facebook page law enforcement today radio show we're on twitter Follow us at L.E.T. Radio Show Podcast. And on Instagram, look for L.E.T. Radio Show Podcast. Of course, don't forget our website, letradioshow.com. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today show. We've got another great guest heading your way next week. Don't miss it. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.